You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Friends, welcome this morning. My name is Spencer, and I am the pastor here. And some of you just said, what? <laughs> what does that mean? There's been some changes that have happened in the last few weeks. And um, I'm so glad to be here this morning and share this with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 1. I'd recommend getting those if you have them, because we're just reading through Philippians in this series. Uh, we're doing a five-week series. This is part two of five. A five-week series on change, because we are obviously in a season of change. Uh, you have a new pastor. I'm in a new church. There's all kinds of new things going on, and, and it may just not be just the, the church. I mean, there's just change all, all over life. Maybe, maybe some of you have new changes in career or, or relationships or finances or health, whatever it is. Uh, we're, we're working our way for five weeks to talk through um, this, this change and this, this way of handling change that we go through, because how is it that, that followers of Jesus should handle change? That's the question we're wrestling with in this series. How do followers of Jesus handle change? Because here's how normal people handle change. They get stressed out. That's how normal people handle change. But, but what about people who believe in the resurrection? How do we handle change? How do people who believe in, in, in life everlasting, how do we handle change? How do people who believe that after three days the tomb was empty, like, like what does that mean for us and how do we approach this? So we're reading through, I'm not just giving you my opinions, that's not the kind of preacher that I, that I am. Instead, we're, we're learning straight from the Bible, what, what does the Bible teach us? And so to, to guide this series and this discussion, we're reading through a book of the Bible that's all about change, and that book is Philippians, because Philippians was, was written by Paul, it's a letter, it was written by Paul to this local church. He started this local church, and now he's saying goodbye. And so it's a, a kind of a goodbye letter, and, and you got to wonder, as they're wrestling with the change of losing their founding pastor, Paul started the church, their founding pastor, what are the questions that they're wrestling with, and what does Paul teach them in the context of all of that change? And so we're, we're, we're wading through this series and, and looking at what Paul teaches us. Now, we're going line by line through this, this letter, just reading the whole book. And so if you have your Bibles, each week I'm going to ask you to turn there and, and read along with me as we go through this and, and learn from, from the Scripture about how do followers of Jesus, how do we, how do we handle change? So today we're going to jump into this. We're going to jump right into where we left off last week. So last week we read chapters one or chapter one, verse one through eleven. Today we're going to pick up right where we left off, verse twelve, the very next verse after what we read last week. And here's here's how it goes. Verse twelve says this: Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Natural question: What has happened to Paul? What has happened to me? Natural question: What has happened to Paul? Well, verse thirteen answers this. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. This is what's happened to Paul. Why is it that Paul is writing a goodbye letter? Well, it's because he's in chains for Christ. Let me say that differently. Paul is arrested. He's sitting in a Roman prison. He's awaiting his execution. There's a lot of debate about when Philippians was written, but some people think it was written in the year 62. Paul was maybe executed in the year 64. This is not too far ahead of when he will be martyred for the faith. This is what's awaiting him. Paul's no dummy. He knows what's going on here. This is, this is the reason. Now, let's just wrap our minds around that for just a second. This local church 
is saying goodbye to their founding pastor because he's in prison for preaching the gospel, what kind of questions do you think is, are wrestling around their heads? What, what kind of questions are they dealing with? What kind of questions are they feeling? Because, because here's the truth about change. Whatever change is that you're facing, here's the truth about change. Change is always hard. Anyone agree with that? It's okay. You can talk to me this morning. Yes, change is hard. It is hard, and it's okay to say that it's hard. Change is scary. Change is frightening. This is why people get stressed out when it comes to change. Change is, is hard to deal with. Now, imagine you're in Philippi, and this is your church, and the founding pastor has been arrested. How much more scary would this change be than, than if he retired? Or if the bishop had called and said, you're going from Kansas City to Springfield, like you did for me. Like, this is, a, this is a scary, scary thing that they're facing, I'm sure, with all kinds of questions that's, that's bouncing around their heads around this kind of change and, and what it's going to bring to them. And, and yet, notice what Paul said here. He said that what has happened to him has, quote, advanced the gospel. Like, Paul has this, this peace about what it is that's taking place, even though he knows where this is going. Like he can see the writing on the wall and understand this is a bad situation. All of these circumstances are bad, and yet he still says, what has happened to me has, has advanced the gospel. He says that, that everyone, even the whole palace guard, the, the very people who are guarding him, know that he's in chains for Christ. They know what he's facing. They know he's there. Like he has this, this peace, this optimism about what it is he's facing. And he stays on this. Let's keep reading through this and you can keep reading this tone of what he has about, about this change and how he has peace about it. Here's verse 14. He says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So some people are even inspired to preach more because of what's happened to Paul. Others are different. Verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, this is so important. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you have your own Bibles, you should underline that verse. For to me, to live is Christ to die is gain. This is a verse that if you are into Bible memorization, you should memorize this verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's like, you know what? Whatever happens, it's gain as long as I have Christ. Whatever the change is that it looks like, as, as long as I have Christ, there's gain. The, the, the gain is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He keeps going. Verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. You know, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, he says, listen, whatever happens, whatever happens, however this turns out, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, 
since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This, what we just read today, is one of the most helpful writings in the entire Bible about how to deal with change. Because Paul just gives us a fundamental posture that followers of Jesus have to have. Like this is a non-negotiable that followers of Jesus have to have when it comes to change, a fundamental posture. So, so to get to that posture of how followers of Jesus have to have this posture when it comes to change, let's, um, let's flesh this out a little bit and let's ask a, a, a more kind of fundamental question. I said earlier that change is hard and very reluctantly like five of you said, yes, it is hard, but I know that more of you know that change is hard than just the five of you who said that change is hard. Change is, is a hard thing. So let's, let's back up for just a second and let's ask this question. Why is change hard? Why is change hard? And there might be several reasons you might think of why change is hard. Change is hard maybe on one hand because when things change, you have to learn new things, right? I remember back before we had like Netflix and Amazon Prime and all this online streaming for TV. This is how we get TV in my house. We have online streaming. I remember we had a cable box and the cable box had channels, actual channels and a remote control. My kids have no idea what this is. They don't understand what a channel is, but, but actual things. And every once in a while, the cable company would change the channels and you'd have to relearn the numbers. Does anyone remember this? Anyone who's under 30 is like, I have no idea what he's talking about with on, like TV channels. It's so strange. But this is how it was. And, and it was hard because you had to relearn things. But, you know, on a much more honest level, change is not hard because you have to relearn things. There's a much deeper level of why change is hard. It has nothing to do with relearning things. You see, when you're faced with change, change is hard because it makes you ask a very uncomfortable question, and, and here it is. What's going to happen? That's the question of change. What's going to happen? Is it going to work out? How is it going to work out? Will I be better off on the other side of the change? What, what, what's going to happen? That, that's the question of change. You, you have a new pastor, and some of you have been asking that question. What, what's what's going to happen? Is the church going to be okay? Is, is, is the church going to be healthy? Is the church going to grow? Is this new guy going to come in and start changing everything right away? Did anyone ask that question or think that? It's okay. It's okay if you did. Some of you are, th are wondering, is he ever going to talk slower? Some of you are asking that question. <laughs> Change is hard, and it makes you ask questions like this of, of how, how is it going to work, and, 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 and is it going to work out? Uh, my wife and I, we, two weeks from, I don't know, just a few days from now, a couple weeks from now, um, we have our, our anniversary, 16 years. I met my wife, Abby, in college. We went to the same college in, in Tulsa, and we met on the first week of school, and right away, like, I, I knew it. I was in. She didn't remember the first meeting or the first, like, three meetings, but I, like, I was in right away. <laughs> And so in a couple of weeks, we'll have our anniversary, 16 years, and we moved last month, and so you start moving. Whenever you move, you start asking questions and reflecting and thinking back on life and where you've been and all that, and, and I started to count, because we've moved so much. Moving's not a new thing for us. We moved so much, I lost track of, of all the moves. And so in 16 years of marriage, we have moved, uh, we've lived in seven places in three states. Now, we've lived in Springfield twice, so there's like some kind of going around there, but that, that's a lot of moving, especially because our last place we were at, we were at for seven years. So at the first few years of our marriage, we just moved all the time. We moved for school, we moved for jobs, we just like, we just seemed to never be, be solid anywhere. So this is why building roots at this point in our life is really important because we moved for, for so long. And, and um, I remember when we moved to our last place, uh, so we were in Dallas for a while, and then we moved to Tulsa. 
And in Tulsa, I was on staff at this very large church, and we were really, oh, we, were, we loved Tulsa. And uh, we were there for five years, and it was a great, this great community, this great church we were at, this, this great friends we were at, just loved it. And after five years, you know, you just kind of got the sense that God was saying it's time, it's time to go. And at the time, my wife and I were really interested in starting a church. That was what we felt like, man, just really interested in that, and, and really felt like maybe God was calling us to be a church plant uh, kind of family. And so we were, we were pursuing that. We were living in Oklahoma, uh, and Methodism, kind of each state is its own kind of regional entity. So we started contacting folks back in Missouri because I was from Joplin and there was a connection there. And Missouri at the time was starting more churches than any other place in America. So it was like a great place to be for Methodism. And so we, we put our names forward to start a church. And uh, you go through all this assessment, you go through like personality tests, you have to write things and they, they listen to you preach and all these kinds of things they have to do to start a church. And it was looking like we we're going to start a church. That was the direction we were headed. And so I remember it was Ash Wednesday. I got the phone call about where we were going. Ash Wednesday, the person calls me and says, all right, we, we know where you're going. You're going to Kearney. And I said, where's that? And they said, it's in Kansas City. And I said, is it a new church? Because that was not on the radar. Like that was not the town that was on the radar. We were talking about starting a church in another town. And, and they said, no, no, uh, it's, it's an existing church. And I said, well, it's like a newer church. And they said, no, I think it's like 150 years old. <laughs> and I said, oh, hmm. And I'll be honest with you, like between you and me, don't like spread this anywhere else. Between you and me, I, when I got to Kearney, like I had my mindset on this other thing that we were gonna be doing, and I was angry. And, and I got there and I, I was like, this isn't what I thought God wanted us to do. This wasn't the direction I thought we were, being, we were going to. And for the first few months, I was, I, was, like I was upset because I thought this isn't what I thought we would be doing. Like we put ourselves out there and then we ended up in this whole other thing that, that wasn't even close to what we wanted to be doing. And, and I just, I was angry and I, I was a little resentful and it took me a while. Now, in retrospect, Carney was amazing, amazing people. I saw God move in an amazing way. Sometimes you have plans and then God has different plans and it's amazing. But, but there was this, this season when we arrived in Carney where it's just like, this isn't what I thought it would be. I wonder if you ever experienced that where, where you have a vision for what you think life is going to look like. And then life happens and it looks like this. And of course that happens in much more dramatic fashion than just how like, a job works. I mean, some of you have experienced that in very hard things in life, but sometimes you have a vision for what you think life is going to be, and then life happens and it looks like this, and you end up feeling sometimes sad or sometimes scared or sometimes angry like I felt or resentful, and, and you're having to deal with, the, with what, the changes that what you thought it was going to be. And sometimes when you're in those places where you have this vision for what life is going to be and then it ends up like this, sometimes in those moments there is this voice that starts to whisper in your head. Maybe you've heard this voice before. It starts to say things like, this change isn't going to work. Or on the other side of this change, it's going to be worse than it was before. Or you're going to be worse off. Or this is going to end in disaster. This voice that starts to whisper in your head about all the things that could go wrong and all the things that, that are not making you happy and all the things that are, that are wrong in life or could go wrong in life. By the way, the name of that little voice is fear. You see, fear, it, it smacks right in the middle of change. And this is the thing that change sometimes hinges on is how we deal with this little voice of fear. 
Because when life, and you have a vision for life that's going this way, and then you end up in a vision of life that's going this way, fear is this thing that you have to start paying attention to and dealing with. It reminds me of what Jesus said. I, I love these words. It's Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. I bet you've heard this before. It goes like this. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life, Jesus says. Do not worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And I wonder if there's other things that maybe you should put in this list. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your finances. Do not worry about your new pastor. Do not worry about how fast he talks. Do not worry about your retirement. Do not worry about your relationship. Do not worry about these things that, that cause you to worry. Like whatever it is you put on this list, I think Jesus would include on this list. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than that thing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? By the way, what is the answer to that question? No, some of you just needed to say that out loud. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, was here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And this brings me to the fundamental posture that Christians have to have when it comes to change. That's what I said earlier, right? There's a non-negotiable that we read in Philippians 1 about how Christians approach change, a non-negotiable posture that Christians have when it comes to change, because you see there are two postures you can have when it comes to change. One posture is like this. It's my way. It's my plans. It's my agenda. It's my timetable. It's, it's my future. It's my goals. It's my dreams. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. That's one posture you can have when it comes to change. And, and whenever it doesn't end up in the way that you want it to end up, you end up stressed out, resentful, angry, what fear, whatever it is that you end up. Mine, mine, mine. That's one posture you can have when it comes to change. Here's the other one. Ready? It's yours. It's yours. It's not my table. It's not my agenda. It's not my timing. It's, it's, it's not my goals. It's not my future. It's not even my life. It's yours. Two postures. This is the posture that Paul has in Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever happens, he says, whatever happens, whether it works out the way I want it to work out or the way it, I, I hope it doesn't work out, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he says. It's, it's an open palm. It's, it's holding the future that I have and I love and I see so clearly. It's holding that future and it's putting it into God's hands and saying that prayer. We prayed it earlier. Your will be done. We could do this. White knuckle grip our future or we can give it to the Lord. But you can't do both. It's one or the other. A fundamental posture for change is when we take our plans our agenda, our goals, our dreams, 
and we place it before the Lord. Now, spiritually speaking, the word we would use most often to describe this kind of living, um, as Christians at least, is the word surrender. That we would surrender whatever it is we have, we would give it to the Lord, that this is, that this is His to begin with. And so when we have changes in life and we're afraid that it's not gonna go the way we want it to go, we're afraid that it's gonna end up poorly on the other side, you have a choice in the matter. Are you going to white knuckle grip your hopes for that change? Will you let go and give it to the Lord and hold the outcome loosely? This is the choice that we have to make. Now this morning, I I wanna give you something very practical today. So um, I I wanna offer you a way that, at least for me, this has been a helpful thing, and maybe this isn't so helpful for you, but for me, there has been a singular practice that I have used in my life that has helped me go from this to this. And I've used this tool in my life over and over and over again. And so if you're somebody this morning who maybe is struggling through some change or, or is finding themselves afraid of whatever it is you might have, whatever changes might be going on in your life, and, and your temptation is to hold on real tight, and, and, and maybe the Lord's calling you to let go of that thing and to give it to Him, I, I want to offer you a, a very practical tool that, at least for me, I have used in my life um, on a regular basis uh, to be able to surrender things to the Lord. And it's, not, it's nothing fancy, it's just a simple prayer. It's not a prayer that I even wrote. It's like 300 years old, but it's just a prayer that I have, I have gone to over and over and over again in my life. It's called the Wesley Covenant Prayer. Uh, this is a prayer that Methodists have prayed for 300 years. It's, it's a prayer that goes back to our very beginning as Methodists. And it's a prayer just about surrender and seeing how it is that you relate to the Lord and, and how it is that He is the Lord and you're not and how it is that it's His life that He's living through you and not your life where you can just control things and I've prayed this prayer sometimes through seasons of life, like sometimes during Lent, I'll just pray this prayer every day. Sometimes when I'm trying to make difficult decisions, I come back to this prayer because it reminds me of my relationship to the Lord and how He is the one I'm following, it's not just my plans. And and I just come back to this over and over again. I wanted to offer this to you this morning because maybe you're in a situation where your temptation is to hold on really tightly and this is a prayer that reminds you to surrender, to to take whatever it is that you have and, and to put it in His hands and and we even printed it today, so it's in your bulletins. And I'd encourage you maybe even to take it with you and put it in your Bibles, put it in your wallet, put it with somewhere you can take with you and pray this prayer um, on a regular basis. There's nothing magical about it. It's not even the Bible. It's just, it's just a prayer that positions us in the right kind of way. So as we close this morning, I, I want us to pray this prayer together. And this, to me, is a challenging prayer. Every time I pray it, I feel myself challenged to once again to, to surrender things to the Lord, to surrender what He has for us. And I'm just going to ask you, we'll put it on the screens here this morning, but also we'll have it printed if you'd rather do that. And I just want to pray this prayer together with one voice out loud um, as we close our time here um, with the Word. So if you would, let's join together and pray this prayer of surrender. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
I am yours and you are mine, so be it. And the covenant I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Friends, I invite you that if you are going through season of change, of fear, of worry, anxiety, to take that and put it in the Lord's hand. And here is a simple tool that you can use to repeatedly come to the Lord and say, it's not my life, it's yours. It's not my future, it's yours. It's not my church, it's yours. It's, it's all yours. Amen.